This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in African Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my honor to be in dialogue with Dr. Samson Abebe Bezabe. He is assistant professor in the School of Modern Languages and Cultures at the University of Hong Kong. We will be discussing his newly published book, Djibouti, A Political History, published in Boulder, Colorado by Lynn Reiner Publishers, 2023. Samson, I'm blessed to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you for having me uh, uh, for this interview, Ari. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you about my new book on the political history of Djibouti. Thank you. It is indeed uh, a sincere honor for me. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you would become as an adult? Um my research interest centers uh, around the state and the crisis it generates. I believe one of the major factors that uh, factor shaping my interest is the context in which I grew up. Uh, so I, I was born in Addis Ababa, uh, the capital city of Ethiopia, in December 1978. Uh, this was a time when the Ethiopian state, uh, as, as you know, uh, had become a socialist and the Ogadian war with Somalia, which lasted from uh, July 1977 to March uh, 1978, um, had recently ended. Uh, this was a very challenging period uh, as Ethiopian society was in turmoil due to not only the war with Somalia, but also with the white and red terror, which involved conflict between the military junta, the Dirk, and the socialist opposition groups such as the Ethiopian People Revolutionary Party. The Derg also fought uh, with separatist groups in the north of the country. Um, and this socialist state ended uh, uh, in 1991, which means that my childhood largely uh, took place in a context in which the state was in consistent crisis. So growing up in this environment made me more aware of the crisis that the state creates in everyday life. Uh, it made me aware of how the state structure impacted people's life 
during uh, crisis, and it promoted me to consider uh, potential solutions for the existential problem that the state posed to ordinary citizens like uh, myself and my family. Um, however, the socialist state I grew up uh, in is also offered intellectual opportunities. Uh, this period saw mass literary campaigns and state-organized discussion groups. Um, there were uh, discussion groups that were organized in neighborhood uh, and so on. Uh, these were the, 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 the things that were discussed in this uh, state-organized uh, uh, discussion group were mostly Marxist literatures. Uh, but then still it gave it gave an opportunity for people to talk about it and discuss about it and do to to debate. Um, additionally, there was a considerable vibrant uh, literary culture uh, as the state encouraged the publication of books through the state monopolized publishing houses. So um, the presence of this reading and literary culture, despite uh, being a controlled one, had a significant impact for children like myself who grew up in the socialist state. Uh, in our house, there was a vibrant debate that revolved around these publications, uh, as my father was particularly keen in re reading not only socialism, which the state dictated, but also as a subject. Uh, books on religion that range from Christianity to Buddhism and occult literatures, such as the work of uh, Jean Dixon and so on. Uh, so this interest in politics uh, and in books and in debate persisted when uh, I attended Addis Ababa University, where I pursued my bachelor's and master's degree. Um, outside of our formal classes, there was an informal competition among students to read the most important books. Um, the intellectual milieu at Addis Ababa University leaned mostly to the left, uh, reflecting the 17 years of socialist rule. Russian literature was more widely read than English literature, uh, with reading Dostoevsky, for, for example, being considered as mark of intellectualism and not reading it a source of shame. Um, so the books uh, that circulated and that were read within the student community were particularly critical works that focused on African liberation um, and issues of development, particularly development that relate to the state. Uh, it was here, for example, that I was exposed to the work of Franz Fanon, Malcolm X, and liberation theology, as well as popular and theoretical works uh, that critique development and the state, such as Graham Hancock's Lords of Poverty and the post-development work, uh, like Arturo Escobar. Uh, because of the, all this reading and the crisis-laden social state that I grew up, uh, I had a strong interest in understanding the problem created by the state and exploring potential solutions. This interest grew and became more refined when I received a scholarship uh, to pursue my MPhil and PhD in social anthropology at the University of Bergen in Norway. Uh, the department, founded by the Norwegian social anthropologist Frederick Bars, uh, has a significant reputation in both the Norwegian context and within the global community of social anthropologists. Bars' work on ethnicity and his contribution to the formation of this transactional school in social anthropology 
uh, through his study of the Swat pattern in northwestern frontiers of Pakistan, were particularly well referred. Uh, so although Professor uh, Baz was not present during my time as an MPhil student, uh, the program in which I was enrolled focused on anthropology of development and was heavily influenced by, by his ideas. Um, and the MPhil program provided me with an opportunity to examine political and state-related dynamics such as ethnic violence form of from a transactionalist perspective. Uh, additionally, it allowed me to critically engage with the development and the state uh, as the program focused on critiquing development itself and exploring how development industry and the state as the main actor for distributing development generate poverty. So during my time at the university, a notable figure particularly was uh, the Australian anthropologist uh, uh, Bruce Kafferer, who worked on issues related to nationalism, the culture of state, and the relation between capital and empire and space, among other topics. Uh, my PhD dissertation focused on uh, Yemeni migrants to Djibouti and Ethiopia, uh, rather than directly on development or the state. However, in examining this migration, I explored the influence of state and empire on Indian Ocean migration, further developing my interest in the role of the state in social life. Uh, uh, after completing my studies in Bergen, I pursued postdoctoral research uh, at the African Studies Center at the University of Leiden, Netherlands, and the Ecole des Hautes Etudes en Sciences Sociales in Paris. This experience allowed me to develop my ideas further and when I later obtained my first job at Makerere University in Uganda, my engagement with thinking about the state and African problems related to the state increased exponentially. Uh, I began working under Professor Mahmoud Mamdani at uh, Makerere Institute of Social Research, who, as you might know, wrote influential critical works on the legacy of colonialism and the problem of the post-colonial state. The Makerere milieu presented me with an opportunity actually to connect um, with and in a sense discover African intellectuals who thought uh, about the state and its problem, such as Bala Usman, writer from the Ibadan School of History, the work of Walter Rotney and Okot Papitik. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? Um, there were two primary factors that inspired me to write this book, Ari. The first one related to the research gap. Uh, while conducting my research on the Yemeni diaspora in Djibouti, I realized that there was no comprehensive account of Djibouti political history since independence. The most significant book published in English on Djibouti's political history dated uh, back to 1968, written by Virginia Thompson and Richard Adloff. Uh, and covers the history of Djibouti only up until that year. This means that this important book does not inform us about what happened in Djibouti after 1968, uh, let alone after its independence from France in 1977. Another book, Djibouti, Pound of the Horn of Africa by uh, Robert Tolomier, was published in 1981, essentially a translation of the author's French book, Djibouti avec les affaires et les Issa. It covers uh, the first year of independence, but primarily focused on Djibouti colonial history. Uh, 
Uh, recognizing this gap, I felt that someone should write a comprehensive book on Djibouti history after independence. I eventually began to work on it myself, uh, aiming to provide the scholarly community and those interested in Djibouti with an accessible account of its history without being overtly, uh, theory, overly or theoretical or laden uh, with academic jargon. Uh, the second factor that inspired me to write the book uh, is Djibouti's geopolitical significance, basically. Geopolitically speaking, Djibouti is one of the most important spaces on the planet, yet we do not have a comprehensive account of this strategically vital Red Sea state. By writing this book, I hope to fill this gap and offer readers a, a thorough understanding of Djibouti post-independence political history and its global importance. What are the primary themes in your book? What story does your book tell? My book narrates three types of stories related to Djibouti post-independence political history, which can be summarized by three uh, words, romance, tragedy, and opportunities. The romance aspect of the book tells the story of how Djiboutians have experienced a romantic political vision, wherein the state and its orchestrated political games are seen as a platform for achieving equality, freedom, justice, and peace. During the colonial period, this romantic vision led Djiboutians to aspire for an independent state, hoping that once achieved, they would be free from colonialism and live in a state of justice, peace, and equality. The book recounts these romantic aspirations and the struggles of the Djiboutians people to attend them. However, this political romance did not only occur during independence. It also recurred during the post-Cold War period when attempts were made to institutionalize democracy and multi-party elections, as well as in the aftermath of the Arab Spring. Djibouti political landscape has experienced these romantic episodes periodically, and this book tells their stories. Simultaneously, the book addresses the failure of this romantic vision, leading to the second key term, uh, which is tragedy. Uh, the repeated failure of the romantic state vision and the reason behind them are explored, revealing the tragic experience of the Djiboutian people. Uh, yet, these tragedies have coexisted with opportunities. The book also discusses the opportunities that arose from the conversion of Djibouti's romantic vision of the state into tragedy, particularly for the elite. In this way, the book delves into complex and intertwined aspects of romance, tragedy, and opportunities in Djibouti's post-independence political history. Can you explain the geopolitics of the Red Sea? see in the late 19th century? How was Djibouti impacted by the geopolitical strategies of Italy, France, Ethiopia, Britain, Oman, and other region and extra-regional powers? At the 19th century approach, the Red Sea was dominated by the Ottoman Empire. Uh, however, this situation changed as new actors emerged, starting with Egypt, which was under Ottoman rule, but gained more independence. The Ottomans seceded their claimed territories in the Horn of Africa to Egypt, which aspired to become a significant power in the region. In addition to, to Egypt, Italy, France, and Britain also became a new actor on the scene. By this time, Ottoman power in the world and the Red Sea 
region has diminished, allowing new, new powers to seek a presence in the Red Sea region and its littoral. Uh, there were two phases in this process of seeking relationship and presence. The first, which I would call the treaty and friendship phase, involved various European powers attempting to establish relationship and obtain treaties of friendship with different rule, rulers in the region on both the African and uh, the Arabian side. The second phase involved moving beyond this friendship to create territories by establishing borders, boundaries, and administrative setups for territorial control. In the 19th century, two factors played a significant role in inducing the latter phase of territorial control, particularly when it comes to Djibouti. Initially, only Great Britain actively established a territory in the Red Sea region by founding the colony of Eden, which served as a calling station for steamship traveling to India. However, this situation changed due to two key developments. The first factor that led to the change was the announcement of the construction of the Swiss Canal in 1854 and its subsequent opening in 1869. This development made the Red Sea Corridor the shortest path to the Far East, promoting key powers to convert their treaties of friendship into territorial control. The second factor directly relevant to Djibouti was the Sino-French War, or what is called the Tokyo War, which started in August 1884 and lasted until April 1885. The conflict ha uh, had a significant impact on the creation of the colony of Djibouti. Uh, the British, who controlled Aden, declared themselves neutral and refused to allow the French to use Aden as a coaling station. This development induced the French to actively convert the treaty of friendship they had obtained into a colonial state. The French signed the treaty of friendship with the ruler of Obok in 1862, and when the Tokin War occurred, they, they began establishing an administration in Obok to turn it into a calling station for the ship heading to the Far East. In this regard, they went, they sent Lyons Lagarde to the region in 1883 on a reconnaissance mission. In 1884, he was appointed the administrator of Obok, and over the next 10 years, the French expanded their territorial control by forming administrative setup, establishing boundaries, and making further agreements with the key rulers in the region. This establishment of the colonial state as a result of the dynamics that occurred in the Red Sea region had a significant impact on the people of Djibouti and the Horn of Africa. The arrival of the colonial state as a result of the geopolitical contestation led first and foremost to the permanent division of the countries, ethnic groups who artificial international uh, boundaries. Following the creation of various colonial states, uh, the Afar people, for example, found themselves divide, divided between Djibouti, Eritrea, and Ethiopia. The Issa Somalis were now present in both Ethiopia and Djibouti. What was disconnected, however, was not only the people, but also the spaces and places that served as nodes for trade and culture and social exchange, as port cities often uh, represent cosmopolitan microsomes. The port of Zela, for example, which was important for the people of what is now Djibouti, found itself in a neighboring country with formal restriction and boundary control, uh, specifically British Somaliland and as a colony. 
This process of othering the former, formerly familiar spaces and places also ap applied to Djibouti's territory itself. The territory was divided into separate homelands for the Afar and the Isa people. What became Djibouti was also regarded as a place for the nationals of this space. The hinterland homelands and the national identity were, in a sense, very artificial. Upon examining the history of uh, Djibouti geography, we can see that the ethnic groups never had exclusive, exclusive homeland. The territory that came to be called Djibouti also included Yemeni Arabs, trading diasporas from India, Israelis, Ethiopians, and others. This does not imply that pre-colonial spaces lacked boundaries and conflict. It simply means that both territorial subdivision and ethnic boundaries were not rigid constru rigidly constructed and reified. Another consequence of colonial state formation is the economic imbalance that emerged. Uh, for colonial powers, the primary concern was not the people, but the economic and strategic benefit they could obtain from the controlled spaces. In Djibouti case, as mentioned earlier, the primary goal was to secure a calling station. Obok, situated in the north of the country initially served this purpose. Economically speaking, the nose became a center of economic activity in the early um, years of the uh, in the early years, as French ship passed through Obok. However, it soon declined as Obok was replaced by the port of Djibouti, which is now located in the city of Djibouti, and the city itself became the seat of colonial power. This shift meant, meant that colonial capital was concentrated away from the nose, now considered Afar homeland. For the nose, this resulted in economic decline, stagnation of economic opportunities, and a lack of an overall development. This, along with the, with the creation of boundaries, reification of identities, and subdivision of territories led to the ongoing conflict between the two ethnic groups in the territory, Dafar and Somali, whom the French considered as major ethnic group. The two ethnic groups were labeled as the owners of the country in the colonial state, but were also permanently, permanently placed in a complex and detrimental relationship as a result of the dynamics established by the colonial state. What can Djibouti's history teach scholars and students of post-colonialism? What, if anything, is special and unusual about Djibouti's story, circumstances, and experience? Djibouti, also one of the smallest countries in Africa and the world, hold a strategic location in the Gulf of Aden and the Red Sea region. Uh, this area is geopolitically significant as the Babel Mandeb Strait um, facilitate the transportation of most of the world's oil and other goods. Since the opening of the Swiss Canal in, in 1869, this space has become increasingly important, connecting Europe, the Mediterranean world, and the Red Sea, and the broader Indian Ocean. This unique position makes Djibouti stand out among African post-colonial states. Despite its small size, Djibouti plays a more prominent role than its neighbor. It, uh, its leaders have been able to use this space as an opportunity, and even more powerful nations have been captivated by the special power uh, that emanate from this state. Currently, various global powers have military bases in Djibouti, highlighting its special significance. The special power of Djibouti serves as an important lesson for, for scholars 
of postcolonialism as it reminds us of the power of space and how resources that attract colonial powers can be other than natural resources such as gold or diamonds. In Djibouti, the space itself is the resource. The country does not produce anything significant. In a sense, its primary resource is its location. As long as the world economy relies on oil and goods are transported through Babel Mandeb Strait, the resources that make Djibouti essential remain fixed and ever-present. This means that Djibouti politics, among others, are guided by its special uh, power. Uh, it becomes a de determining factors in people's aspiration, and its small size does not imply weakness or irrelevance, as its location makes it more influential than many larger states in its neighborhood. For post-colonial studies, this serves as a valuable insight into the importance of space in shaping a nation's significance on the global stage. How has Djibouti been impacted by the Yemeni civil war in recent decades. Can you describe its policy and response? The impact of the Yemeni civil war on Djibouti in recent decades, I believe, should be viewed as a historical continuation. Yemen, although situated on the other side of the Gulf of Aden, has always had interaction with the Horn of Africa. One major factor in this relationship is the distance. For example, Yemen is only a few kilometers away from Djibouti, and with, with a small traditional vessel, it takes up to three or four days to travel between the two locations. Although the port spaces in modern Djibouti are closed and travel uh, requires permissions, there is ongoing movement between Djibouti and Yemen via small vessels. This exchange involved illegal communities, contraband, and people, migrant fleeing conflict and economic disparities. These connections, which involve trade, contraband, human trafficking, and more, are partly facilitated by kinship and familial network that exist across the Gulf of Aden. Yemen has experienced conflict and political turmoil throughout its history. The northern part of Yemen has been largely independent, while the southern part, including areas like Aden and Hadramaut, were part of a British colony. Between 1960 and 1970, there were, there were several internal conflicts in North and South Yemen. South and North Yemen also fought a bloody war in 1972. These wars were not only fought by Yemenis, but also involved external actors, such as the Soviets and different Arab countries. The end of the Cold War led to the collapse of the Southern Yemen government, which was supported by the socialist camp, and eventually South Yemen was incorporated into Northern Yemen. This incorporation was not totally peaceful as it led to conflict between Yemeni government and Southern separatist groups who did not accept the unification. The latest war in Yemen has many, uh, has many reasons and actors, but some old factors, such as the presence of a separatist sentiment in, in the South and the involvement of external actors, remain. Djibouti is affected by this conflict, both positively and negatively. Whenever conflict arises in Yemen, there is an influx of refugees, which presents a problem for Djibouti as the country has limited resources to support them. Djibouti also worries 
about the internal security challenge that this influx can potentially create. However, at the same time, the conflict and destabilization in, in Yemen enhance Djibouti's geopolitical significance. For example, during the latest Yemeni civil war, uh, when the Americans lost their military base in southern Yemen, Djibouti became a point of significance. The same applies to other nations who use Djibouti as a safe haven when evacuating their nationals from Yemen. In a nutshell, we can say that there are both positive and negative consequences of the war on uh, of of the war in Yemen on Djibouti. How has the Arab Spring impacted Djibouti? Can you explain the repercussions for the Djiboutian state? Can you describe the ramifications for Djiboutian civil society? The Arab Spring was a movement that raised hopes among Djiboutians. Similar to the decolonization period and the early 1990s when multi-party politics were ushered as a solution to state crisis, the Arab Spring was also seen as a period of optimism. The downfall of leaders in Tunisia and Egypt, along with protests in Libya and other parts of the Arab world, were viewed as uh, as moments of hope. Uh, in South, in Sub-Saharan Africa, only Djibouti and Sudan experienced protests akin to those seen in Egypt and Tunisia. In Djibouti, the Arab Spring coincided with a scheduled national election. Uh, election in Africa are often violent and filled with protest, and this particular election in Djibouti was no exception, as it involved changing uh, the presidential term limit from two to three terms. This change created division within Djibouti political circles between those who support who supported the president running for a third term and those who did not. When the Arab Spring started, it was those who opposed the third mandate who took to the street. Interestingly, this was spontaneous and major opposition figures and political parties were initially caught off guard and did not lead the protests. The clash with the government force began with use in some of the capital neighborhoods and later expanded to involve university students. As Djibouti is a majority Muslim country, like the other nations that experienced the, experienced the Arab Spring, the weekly Friday uh, mosque sessions, which gathered all the faithfuls for the prayers, become a uh, context for protest. After the prayers, demonstrators would march, chanting against the third mandate. In a situation reminiscent of the Arab Springs, um, Djiboutian protesters also occupied the national stadium and refused to leave until their demand were made, specifically the immediate resignation of the president. This demand was eventually made with force as the government cracked down on the protesters. Uh, this ended the protests, but its effects were not limited to its uh, conclusion. Opposition politicians who had become involved in the protest, as well as members of human rights organizations, were harassed and arrested. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. 
That's shopify.com slash system. What does your book teach us about processes of decolonization? In what ways is Djibouti's history unique and distinct vis-a-vis other countries' paths to decolonization? Well, decolonization was often seen as a solution to African problems with the formation of an independent state at its core. This was thought to address the issue brought about by colonialism. However, alternative solutions were proposed, such as those promoted by the Negritude movement through scholars like Senghor and A.M. Césaire. Despite this alternative, the state solution became the dominant model for achieving decolonization, and forming a state was seen as a key to solving problems. However, this approach has not worked as anticipated. My book, which documents the case of Djibouti, clearly shows that decolonization and the formation of an independent state have not led to freedom or prosperity. The issue is not unique to Djibouti. It is prevalent in many formerly colonized states where decolonization and the state solution have resulted in tragedy. Several reasons can be attributed to this failure. Firstly, the logic of the state itself inherently creates hierarchies among citizens, pitting one group against another. In Djibouti, this logic has perpetually pitted two ethnic groups, namely the Isa and Dafa, as the former control the state, while the latter do not. In a sense, this state logic is also a continuation of the colonial state. When the colonial state was formed, a new political gain linked ethnicity to politics. In pre-colonial Djibouti, ethnicity was not the basis for political identification, nor did it, nor did it have rigid territorial congruence uh, or membership. Colonialism changed this by deploying various techniques ranging from establishing boundaries to conducting census and introducing representational politics based on ethnic categories. During decolonization, these colonial legacies were not dismantled. Instead, the the elite focused on securing their positions and share in the new state, rather than creating and rethinking a new platform playing or playing field and, and or a new game for conducting politics in the newly independent state. The fact that the mediator was the mediators were the colonizers themselves also posed problem, as did, as did the lack of capacity among the Djiboutian politicians. Uh, my book shows the cost Djiboutians had to pay because decolonization did not entail a true process of dismantling the game the, col- the, the game that colonialism set, which serves as the real apparatus of control. Through its stories, uh, this book, um, in a sense, um, invite a, a rethinking of the 1960s and the 1970s in Africa. Until now, this period had been regarded as a time when African became independent, but this narrative of inde- independence is flawed and problematic. In case like Djibouti, decolonization mostly entailed change of luck and not change of playing field or game that was inserted. We see this situation in Djibouti through and throughout Africa where each year independence is celebrated and founding fathers are commemorated. However, beneath these celebrations, the structural setup 
remains, making the celebrations of decolonization redundant and irrelevant beyond uh, generating false uh, sentiment of achievement. Uh, there is a need to rethink or clarify what truly happened in the decolonization process and to imagine other possibilities for political existence without the state. Despite its, its inherent contradiction, the modern state promised peace and equality. But as one can read in my book, this promise continuously fails and turns into tragedies for the masses and opportunities for the elite. It is high time, I think, to rethink the very framework in which we exist as citizens, that is, the modern state. Uh, this might be a difficult process, as the modern state has generated sentiments that covers not only the underlying co colonial structure, but also the fact that the state uh, serves as a postbox of uh, as a postbox for of capital and empire, rather than as a safeguard of people's interests. Despite this, there is hope because the nature of capital is changing, allowing for creativity. Furthermore, the nation state was never natural, but historical, which means we have the possibility of redefining and reconstructing it. The question is on whose term and imagination should this reconstruction be based? My book asserts that in the case of Djibouti, and I believe in most African countries, the term and imagination were shaped by the colonizers. It invites readers to embark on a new exploration of decolonization, independence, and the postcolonial state. How was Djibouti impacted by Benito Mussolini's occupation of Ethiopia? and the Italian occupation of Ethiopia between 1935 and 1941. How was Djibouti affected? How did Djibouti respond? What were the consequences and repercussions for Djibouti? The Second World War had a significant impact on regional politics. Uh, before the war started, the British, French, and the Italian governments were in constant negotiation. The French and the British were certain that war would begin but they sought to weaken Hitler and delay the war's onset. In this strategy, they saw Italy as an important card in the game, as Italy had not yet decided to join Hitler's Germany. This indecision led the British and the French to pursue a policy of appeasing the, the Italians. In this context, the French and the British were willing to recognize and reconsider Italy's, Italy's ambition in the Horn of Africa. The French allowed the Italians to have a free hand in Abyssinia through an agreement made by, the, by, the, by their foreign minister, Pierre Laval. This enabled Italy to occupy Ethiopia. The British did not directly make such an agreement, but they were also willing to relinquish their sphere of influence in Ethiopia, uh, specifically uh, the Blue Nile region uh, to the Italians. Although this appeasement led to Italian control of Ethiopia, the two countries refrained from formally recognizing the legitimacy of the Italian occupation. This lack of recognition led the Italians to aggressively strengthen, strengthen their position in the Middle East, destabilizing British and French interests in the region and hoping to force them to recognize Italy's occupation of Ethiopia and its overall ambition in the Horn of Africa. In the Middle East, for example, the Italians supported and financed Arab protests 
in Palestine, which was under British control. The Arab population opposed the immigration of the Jew people to Palestine and aimed to engage in street protest. The Italian presented themselves as champions of Arabs and Muslims for the colonial um, administration in Djibouti. This aggressive mood move uh, made by the Italians, particularly their presentation as defenders of Muslims and Arabs, was a significant concern. The issue was no longer happening in a relatively distant territory like the Middle East, but in neighboring Ethiopia, now occupied by the Italians. The Italian administration in Addis Ababa staged demonstrations by Muslims and Arabs supporting Italy and affirming that Italy was a friend of Muslims and Arabs. This created a problem for the colonial administration in Djibouti, which was a majority Muslim colony. In Djibouti, there was also significant support for the Arabs of Palestine, leading to the collection of donations and organizations of meetings. This promoted the French to organize their own demonstration, affirming France's friendship with Muslims and Arabs. By 1939, France, as part of its last effort to prevent Italy from joining Hitler's camp, was willing to recognize Italy's occupation of Ethiopia. France sent André-François Ponset as France ambassador to the king of Italy and emperor of Ethiopia. This recognition was too late as the Italians were now emboldened and wanted to take control of Djibouti, as well as several other territories around the world, such as Tunisia, Nice, nice Savoy, and Corsia. In, in 1940, the Deladier uh, government was even prepared to hand over Djibouti. However, this did not prevent Italy from joining Hitler's camp. Uh, when the war finally broke out, France was controlled by the pro-Hitler uh, Vichy government and occupied um, by the German army. This situation was uh, resisted by the Free French Force led by General de Gaulle. In this context, the colony of Djibouti joined the Vichy administration. There was little military engagement in the colony itself. Um, but a major consequence, the major consequence of the war was the blockade of the territory by the British naval force. By blocking the territory, the British aimed at preventing the Vichy government from using the territory to support uh, the Axis power. This naval blockade had significant consequence on Djibouti's economy as it primarily depended on access to the sea. It also prevented the movement of people across spaces. Eventually, the pro-Vichy colonial government of Djibouti surrendered to the British and free uh, French force. How was Djibouti impacted by the Ethiopia-Eritrea War of the late 1990s? Can you describe Djibouti's policies and relationships with the two sides? Djibouti has always been important for trade of Eastern Ethiopia, but it was not the most important port for the country. The most significant port was the port of Assad, which was in Ethiopia, but became part of the newly formed state of Eritrea when Eritrea got independence from Ethiopia in the early 1990s. One of the major impacts of the Ethiopian Eritrea war 
was depriving Ethiopia of access to the port of Assab, through which the majority of Ethiopian goods were imported, including the essential um, fuel. This situation greatly benefited Djibouti. Starting from the beginning of the war, Ethiopian goods were re redirected from Assab to Djibouti, making Djibouti the de facto trading port of Ethiopia. Ships that would have gone to Assab were now heading to Djibouti. During this period, Ethiopia imported not only trade items, but also weapons which were transported through the port of Djibouti. International organizations, particularly the World Food Program, were also forced to use Djibouti to deliver food aid to Ethiopia. As a result of the war, Djibouti was inundated with imported trade, items, weapons and food aid, generating a significant revenue for the country. This led Djibouti to expand its port, making it more competitive with other ports in the region, such as the port of Aden uh, in Yemen and Salala in Oman. Given this economic advantage, Djibouti naturally allied with the Ethiopians. Diplomatic relations with Eritrea were cut off, and Djibouti faced military threat from Eritrea, as it was suspected that the Eritreans would use their newly acquired jets to bomb the port and stop the import of weapons used by the Ethiopians in the war. However, the military trade was countered due to the defense agreement that Djibouti had, in, had with France. Uh, shortly after independence, Djibouti and France signed a series of agreements, one of which was the defense agreement stipulating that France would intervene to protect Djibouti in case of foreign aggression. This clause of the defense agreement was activated during the Eritrean-Ethiopian uh, War, as France sent a 3,900-ton uh, anti-aircraft fire gate equipped with radar that could detect the arrival of an airplane from 316 kilometers. The Ethiopian-Eritrea War was concluded with the Algiers Agreement, signed by the two countries. However, the agreement has not been implemented, and Ethiopia and Eritrea remain in a situation of no peace and no war. Uh, this means that Djibouti has not only benefited during the active conflict, but also in the immediate after months, as, as the no war, no peace situation continues to keep the port of Assab dysfunctional. Can you tell us about President Sayyad Barre of Somalia's relations with Djibouti? How did their ties ebb and flow? Um, the relation between Sayyad Barre of Somalia and Djibouti was complex, to say the least. The various territories that constitute Somalia gained independence from colonial power before Djibouti achieved its independence. This independence for, for Somalia came with a patriotic zeal. Following independence, Somalia harbored the idea of forming a greater Somalia by incorporating all Somali, all Somali people found in neighboring countries due, due to colonial boundaries. This intention create, created an ease in Ethiopia, Kenya, and Djibouti. From Ethiopia, the Sayyad Bari government aimed to take uh, the Ogadian region. From Kenya, it targeted the northeastern part of the country. But when, but when it came to Djibouti, Sayyad Bari intended to incorporate the entire territory. This pro prospect alarmed the Afar population, as Afar and Somali had developed strong animosity, due in part to the divide and rule policy of the colonial state. 
Djibouti's independence was delayed until 1977, largely due to the Afar's population preference to remain under France instead of being absorbed by the Somalia state. Somali politicians in Djibouti were divided in their approach. Some, like the first president of Djibouti, who, of Djibouti, who led the pro-independence party, preferred Djibouti to be a separate country to enjoy the relative economic prosperity and peace that come with managing a small territory. Others, such as uh, the Front de Libération de la Côte Française de Somalie, uh, a party led by uh, Aden Roble Awabe, were pro-Somalia and did not mind if the country would join Somalia. Due to this, due, due to this attitude, the FLCS of Aden Roble Awale were given base and military training in Somalia before reintegrating with the Djibouti government after independence following an accord. For both Afar and Somali politicians, a significant te test case was the Ethiopian-Somali war, which was forced in the region. A rift occurred between the Afar and Somali politicians in the newly formed government. The Prime Minister, Ahmed Dini, and Afar resigned after the government cracked down on the Mouvement Populaire pour la Libération Party, which was mainly composed of Afar people and pro-Ethiopian, particularly pro dirk as they sympathized with Marxism. He was replaced by another Afar, Abdullah Kami, who was quickly dismissed from office after attending a military parade in Ethiopia organized by the dirk to celebrate Ethiopia's victory over Somalia. The attendance was regarded by President Hassan Gouledaptidon as an insult to Somalis. In light of this history, Djibouti relation with Syed Barre Somali was a mix. Different Djiboutians politicians responded to Syed Barre's Somali Somalia different. Either its um, its presence, particularly its claim of integrating all Somali speaking territories, created tension and complexities. Can you comment on the evolution and development of Ethiopia-Djibouti train lines? The Ethiopian-Djibouti train line was part of a development that began with the arrival of colonial powers in the region. The presence of this power in the Red Sea region led to the emergence of several port facilities. In the Italian-controlled part of Eritrea, port facilities were built in Asab and Masawa. The British developed the port of Barbara, among others. In Djibouti, the construction of the port was the main development under colonial rule. Although Ethiopia was the only country in the region, if not the continent, that was not colonized, the surrounding colonial power, powers identified their sphere of influence in Ethiopia. The French sphere of influence was the area immediately surrounding Djibouti, which included the eastern region of Ethiopia known as Harar or Harargi. The British sphere of influence was the Nile region, geographically close to, their, to Sudan and Egypt. The Italian sphere of influence was the northeastern region of Ethiopia. The Ethiopian Djibouti train line was initially intended to connect Djibouti to Harar at the heart of the French zone of influence. From Harar, the plan was to connect the train line to Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, and then to the Blue Nile. However, the rail, railway line destination was not only envisioned to be the Blue Nile. It was also thought 
off as a line that would connect Djibouti, the only French colony in East Africa, to French colonies predominantly in West Africa. The company responsible for constructing the train line, La Compagnie Imperiale des Chemins de Fer Ethiopian, reached an agreement with Emperor Minilik to build the line. Although the company faced financial difficulties and it was eventually replaced by another, the railway line construction continued. In December 1902, it reached what would become the first station, the Redawa, which became a railway city. The plan for reaching Harar and Blue Nile were cancelled, but the aim of reaching Addis Ababa was successful and Djibouti was connected to Addis Ababa via the train line in 1950. At Independence, the train line was renamed from Franco-Ethiopia railway line to Ethiopia-Djibouti railway line. Until 2000s, the train provided service transporting bulk goods and people from Addis, from Addis Ababa to Diredoa and Djibouti. However, its capacity decreased as several trains stopped working due to lack of spare parts, and the train and its railway became old. This situation changed when China became involved in the construction of the train line. In the 1970s, the Chinese constructed the Tazara railway line that extended from Tanzania to Zambia. Uh, this was uh, showcased as a proof of the socialist system superiority of capital over capitalism. While this kind of language was not used in the case of uh, the reconstructing of the Ethiopian Djibouti train line, it was certainly meant to demonstrate Chinese China's emergence as the new power, uh, as a new partner uh, for Africa. The Ethiopia Djibouti train line was at the core of this demonstration as China chose Ethiopia as the lead country for its presence in Africa. And the Ethiopian government under the late Prime Minister Mella Zenawi embraced a Chinese model of development. As a result of this the de development, the Djibouti Ethiopian uh, railway line became part of the Belt and Road Initiative, which the Chinese government and other partners are implementing in different parts of the world. The presence of the Chinese and the train itself now signify a new era in which the old colonial power, which is uh, France, is being supplemented or rather has been supplanted by a new power from the East, which is uh, China. How has the unfolding tragedy in Ethiopia that is presently occurring impacted Djiboutian society and Djibouti's foreign policy. The conflict in Tigray had a serious consequence for Djibouti's economy. Djibouti relies heavily on sport activities, catering almost exclusively to the Ethiopian economy. The eruption of the war affected the Ethiopian economy, hindering the movement of goods and distributing disturbing the supply chain. At one point, the war was fought close to the main highway line connecting Djibouti and Ethiopia. Tigray People Liberation Front fighters also threatened to cut off the train line and road connecting the two countries, aiming to economically suffocate the Ethiopian uh, government. This posed an existential threat not only to Ethiopia, but also to Djibouti. The Djiboutian government considered deploying troops in the border to avert this possibility. However, the TPLF army was pushed back and the anticipated block blockade 
did not occur. Despite this, the conflict slowed Djibouti's economy. On the other hand, the tragic conflict also highlighted Djibouti's significance in the region as it was seen as a stable state amidst the turmoil. Some secret talks between TFALF and the Ethiopian government were held in Djibouti, for instance. In summary, while the war further emphasized Djibouti's strategic importance, it also had negative aspects, slowing its economy and posing a potential existential threat. How did the war on terrorism change Djibouti's foreign policy orientation? Can you comment on Djibouti's relationship with the United States? How were U.S.-Djibouti relations different under President Barack Obama vis-à-vis President George W. Bush? The war on on terrorism took place in a context where France's relationship with its former African colonies was evolving. In the years preceding the moment of the war on terror and the 9-11 attack that catalyzed it, uh, France standing in Africa was troubled and being fine-tuned for several reasons. The first was the Rwandan genocide in which France was accused of supporting the uh, perpetrators. The fall of Mobutu Seko regime in Zaire also created problems for the French, as Mobutu had been one of their allies in Central Africa despite his corruption. Additionally, the days of Jacques Bocart, an an important a French political figure in dealing with African countries dealt a blow to, to, to the French. This factor promoted France to reconsider its military involvement in Africa, reducing military cooperation and troop numbers in many places. They also began forming alliances with states that were not traditionally their colonies, breaking the tendency to partition Africa into sphere of influence along colonial lines. The United States also had to rethink its strategy in Africa due, its, due to its uh, disastrous um, involvement in Somalia. The new strategy focused on forming African peacekeeping missions and military centers that trained African peacekeepers rather than direct involvement, summarized by the phrase African solution to African uh, problems. When the war on terror began, these factors formed the backdrop for U.S. involvement in Africa, and the traditional competition for ter- territorial control had diminished. The United States con- contemplated establishing military bases in various parts of Africa, with the Horn of Africa being the preferred location. One factor guiding this decision was the, sus- the suspicion that bin Laden and his Al-Qaeda entourage were uh, hiding in lawless Somalia and southern Yemen, which is across from Djibouti. Djibouti's geopolitical importance as a choke choke point for controlling the movement of Mujahideen fleeing from Afghanistan to the region and beyond to Europe also played a role. This decision led the United States to establish its first base in Djibouti during President George W. Bush administration, serving as an essential military space in the global war on terror, particularly focused on Somalia and southern Yemen. The first uh, agreement for the camp was made with Djibouti's government in 2003, uh, with the Americans leasing the camp for 30 million per year for um, 10 years. When the camp was, um, when, when the camp use was renegotiated in 2014 under Obama administration, the Americans were willing to pay double to the Double the price, 63 million 
US dollar per year. Um, so while there were difference in approach between the Bush and Obama administration, with Bush, you are uh, either with us or uh, against us policy contrasting with Obama's promise of less interference in other countries' affairs. Uh, the strategic importance of Djibouti meant little difference in practice. Uh, both administrations supported and worked with the regime in power and continued to use the strategically important location. Can you comment on Djibouti's relations with Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed of Ethiopia and President Isaias Afwerki of Eritrea in recent years? The relation between Ethiopia and Djibouti uh, is primarily dependent on their economies, and the rise of Abiy Ahmed to power has not changed uh, has not changed this fundamental aspect. Ethiopia remains a close ally of Djibouti, despite despite occasional issues between the two countries. One major issue that predates Abiy Ahmed's tenure is the periodic increase in port handling fees by the Djiboutian government, which raises concerns in Addis Ababa. However, this has not uh, significantly impacted the relationship between the two countries, primarily due to their mutual economic dependence. This for forced interdependence does not allow leaders to create animosity. In terms of Eritrea, the relationship between the two countries had changed since Abiy Ahmed rise to power. During the Eritrea-Ethiopia uh, conflict, Djibouti accused Eritrea of supporting uh, Front pour, le, pour la Restauration de l'Unité et de la Démocratie, FRUD, an armed insurgency group which, uh, waging a low-scale insurgency against the Djiboutian government. In 2008, relations further deteriorated when Djibouti accused Eritrea of encroaching on its border, leading to a small border skirmish between the two countries, militaries, and a complete uh, breakdown of relations. Abiy Ahmed's rise to power facilitated an rapprochement between Ethiopia and Eritrea. This also led to the normalization of relationship and the establishment of diplomatic relations between Djibouti and Eritrea, following medi mediation efforts by Abiy Ahmed. However, it is difficult to predict the future of uh, this uh, rapprochement as the relationship between Ethiopia and Eritrea uh, has stagnated. When Abiy came to power, it was a euphoric moment with plans to open the port of Assab and build a road and train line connecting Assab to Addis. Uh, an Ethiopian ship also landed in Assab for the first time in decades, symbolizing a new era. However, the Tigray war halted this development and, did, and, and ended with the Pretoria Agreement signed between TPLF and um, Abiy Ahmed government. This new dynamics excluded the Eritrean government and has since led to a stagnation relation between Eritrea and Ethiopia. In Ethiopia, in the Amhara region, there are also dissatisfaction regarding the renewed relation between TPLF and the central government as a result of the Pretoria Agreement uh, and the suspected uh, and the suspect uh, and, and people in the Amhara region suspect that uh, as part of the ag uh, uh, as part of the agreement uh, the government is willing to cede territories that is con contested between the Amhara and the Tigray region. In this month, we have uh, seen military engagement in Amara region between Fanun, a military a militia group that fought 
uh, on government side in the Tigray war and the central government who is in command of the Ethiopian Defense Force. The situation inside Ethiopia is bound to affect relations between Djibouti and Eritrea. However, Djibouti is more likely to support the central Ethiopian government due to, due to its economic interests and opposition to any powers that could destabilize it. It is difficult to predict the outcome of emerging issues and behind the scene political maneuvering and, and alliance formation, but Djibouti's relation with its, with its neighbor will undoubtedly be defined primarily by its relationship with Ethiopia. Can you comment on Djibouti's relations with Gamal Abdel Nasser of Egypt? What were the vicissitudes of Egyptian-Djiboutian relations during this time? How did Djibouti perceive Pan-Arabism? Um, well, Gamal Abdel Nasser and the Pan-Islam and Pan-Arab nationalism he had had a significant impact on Djibouti politics. When representation politics began in colonial Djibouti in the 1940s, the French favored the Arabs among the three major ethnic groups, the Afro-Somalian Arabs. Even before the 1940s, the Arabs were the preferred subject of the French, receiving more job opportunities in port-related activities, particularly those related to the French shipping line, Messagerie Maritime. As Arab nationalism, particularly Nasserism, swept through the Arab world, the Arab community in Djibouti responded favorably to its message. The French even began to suspect Arab individuals who had previously been strong allies of their ruler. Gamal Abdel Nasser's message received strong support within the Arab community. However, Arabs were not the only one who embraced Nasser's ideology. Djibouti politicians of Somali origin also supported the Nasserite ideology. Mohamed Harbi, whose political career in Djibouti began with organizing and leading labor unions, was particularly ardent nationalist. The French suspected him of being influenced by uh, um, Nasser's ideology and sponsored by Arab nations. In the late 1950s, this reality promoted the French support of a politician um, while disfavoring Arabs or Somali politicians with strong nationalist sentiments. And at the end of the day, when decolonization approached, the Arabs were, who were key actors in the early politics of the territory lost out for, uh, for the Isas and the Afars. How did Emperor Haile Selassie of Ethiopia handle relations with Djibouti. Can you comment on Djiboutian-Ethiopian relations during his time in rule? Emperor Haile Selassie's relation with Djibouti and his approach to managing relation with the country should be viewed uh, from, my from my perspective within the context of his relation with the West, particularly with France, which was uh, in control of Djibouti at the time. Haile Selassie enjoyed a warm relationship with the West, particularly after World War II, when he was regarded as a statesman and received with great popularity during his visit to Western countries. His relationship with France was especially close. Emperor Haile Selassie was fluent in French, and during the early years of his rule, French influence was highly visible in Ethiopia. Although Amharic was the official language of the country, uh, French was also used in official communications. Furthermore, it was France that sponsored Ethiopia's entry into the League of Nations in 1923, contributing to the increased visibility of Haile Selassie and Ethiopia in the Western world. 
Djibouti relationship with Haile Selassie in Ethiopia should be considered within this broader context. The Haile Selassie government did not harbor animosity toward the French. However, it was concerned by the formation of the Republic of Somalia. The Republic of Somalia aimed to incorporate Somali-speaking territories from the Horn of Africa, and this included Djibouti itself. Although they started their intention to do so peacefully, the concrete steps they took were perceived as threatening by both France and Ethiopia, who feared losing access to the port of Djibouti. The Republic of Somalia hosted anti-French and pro-Somalia groups in their territory and engaged in broadcasting anti-French and anti-Ethiopian message from Mogadishu. Uh, they also actively advocated for the decolonization of Djibouti in African Union platforms and the UN Decolonization Committee. Haile Selassie opposed this agenda and expressed hope that if the French were to leave Djibouti, they would hand it over to Ethiopia due to the war Due to, due to the warm relation between the two countries and the natural geographical extension of Djibouti into Ethiopia. Given, given Djibouti's small size and arid climate, it was not expected to function as a sovereign nation, and both Somalia and Ethiopia competed to incorporate it. Haile mm -hmm. Selassie government not only hoped for a French handover, but also produced propaganda depicting Djibouti as a natural extension of Ethiopia. His government also hosted pro-Ethiopian Djiboutian political parties as countermeasure. Haile Selassie was in power. While Haile Selassie was in power, two referendums were held to determine whether Djibouti would remain with France or, or gain independence. The first took place in 1958 and the second in 1967, following violent demonstration during General de Gaulle visit to, to the colony in 1966. In both referendum, the people chose to stay with France, but this decision created tension between Somalia and Ethiopia, who were competing for control of the territory in case the, in the French decided to leave Djibouti. Shortly before the 1967 referendum, Haile Selassie government deployed troops near the Ethiopian-Djibouti border, intent intending to control Djibouti militarily in case the referendum lead to a vote for independence. Ultimately, Djibouti gained independence in 1977, but by this time, Haile Selassie was no longer in power, having been deposed and killed by the Derg military junta in 1974. The French did not immediately evacuate Djibouti as feared. Instead, they signed various co cooperation agreements with the new independent government, securing their economic interests and maintaining their military presence. This, arrange, uh, this agreement provided Djibouti with so uh, sovereignty and viability as France became its defender in the case of foreign aggression. What were the origins and outcomes of the Djibouti-Eritrea border conflict? The conflict between Djibouti and Eritrea became, began in uh, April 2008 when Djibouti accused Eritrea of encroaching on its border. This disputed area, Ras Dumeria, is the most strategically important location in the Red Sea Corridor due, its, due to its location at the Bab el Strip. The potential for destabilization of the Red Sea transshipment drew international attention to Djibouti's claim. Although Eritrea quickly withdrew from the area, tension remained high 
as Djibouti claimed that Eritrea was building military posts and stationing troops along the border. Djibouti also alleged that Eritrea was planning to build a road connecting Asab and Dumiri. The Djiboutian army mobilized near the border, leading to skirmish on June 10, 2008. The, the incident was triggered by Eritrean soldiers attempting to cross into Djibouti, which led to an exchange of fire between the two armies. The matter was brought before the United, United Nations Security Council, which established a fact-finding mission. The report concluded that, concluded that the conflict had a grave consequence for the region and the international community. In January 2009, the Security Council passed the resolution calling for Eritrea and Djibouti to resolve the issue uh, through dialogue. In June 2010, Qatar agreed to mediate the dispute between the two countries. Qatar's peacekeeping mission was stationed in the disputed area but it was withdrawn uh, in 2017 due to the Qatar diplomatic crisis. Uh, Eritrea accused uh, Qatar, uh, so on, but in 2018, relations between Eritrea and Djibouti were normalized as part of the broad, broader rapprochement between Eritrea and Ethiopia following Abiy Ahmed's uh, assumption of power. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about the work you've been doing since completing this book? I'm currently working on the post-socialist transition in Ethiopia, uh, focusing on two related books that, uh, that examine the post-socialist state and politics from a local epistemological perspective. Uh, while there are numerous works that explore the Ethiopian post-socialist state, addressing issues such as ethnicity, ethnic federalism, electoral politics, and territorial reconfiguration, the studies do not fully capture how people use their local epistemological categories to understand the post-socialist state and its politics. So uh, the two books that I'm writing uh, aim to explore people's resistance to the post-socialist post state um, beyond electoral politics, street protest, and armed struggle. I investigate how uh, individuals engage in resistance and meaning-making process using religious epistemological categories. The subject of my book include hermits who comment on the socialist states, uh, magicians who are known for healing people through magical scroll, but now are engaged in healing the post-socialist state and the self of its citizens, as well as spirit mediums who traditionally heal individuals by appeasing uh, spirits, uh, but now employ the same technique to help uh, believers cope with or endure the effect of the state. By understanding this alternative world the, that intertwined with the post-socialist state, um, I hope through these books to reveal the unique way people confront the crisis of state which in social science and political discourse is typically addressed through mechanisms such as uh, multi-party politics, transitional justice, and humanitarian intervention. I also aim to understand how this local epistemologist, epistemologist when deployed in relation to the post-socialist state, contribute to expanding our notion of citizenship and ultimately our understanding of human beings living within a political entity called the state, 
which often present itself as a natural, ever-present and unchanging. Thank you. I, Thank you, Ali, for having me. I feel absolutely humbled to have had this honor to communicate with you today and listen to you today and learn from you today. I am absolutely blessed by the time we spent together. Thank you for your eloquent and erudite responses and for all the wisdom and learning you shared with us. Thank you. Thank you, Ari. Thank you for the opportunity. As we end today's dialogue, I am signing off as Ari Barbalat, your host today on the New Books in African Studies podcast. Today, I've been in dialogue with Dr. Samson Abebe Bezabe. He is assistant professor in the School of Modern Languages and Cultures at the University of Hong Kong. We have been discussing his newly published book, Djibouti, A Political History, published in Boulder, Colorado by Lynn Reiner Publishers. 2023. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you, Ari.